So good to see each of you here this morning. We're continuing in our series, Experiencing God. We've kind of started the year with this. We're going to be going through this until the end of March. And if you have not uh, purchased the workbook for this and are working through it, let me strongly encourage you to do that. Uh, We're just in week two. You can jump right in uh, and not miss out. But let me challenge you to do this. It requires some work five days a week, maybe about 20 or 30 minutes, but uh, it really uh, will be rewarding for you to devote this amount of time in your life to intentionally seeking God. Uh, What we're trying to do through all of this uh, is to experience God, not just to learn about Him, not just to find out information about God, but to actually have an experience of God in our lives. And we do this by coming to know his will and doing his will. Uh, So that's the whole focus of all of this. And what I'll be doing every Sunday in our message time and our worship is uh, trying to reinforce some of the things that we're learning uh, through this discipleship. So uh, I will be going over today uh, something uh, that hopefully uh, looks familiar to you. Uh, We all want to succeed in life. We want to see our lives play out with purpose. We want to accomplish something worthy in the living of this human life. What is the key to success in living this human life we're all living? Is it intelligence? Is it the circumstances we were born into the world in? The race we are? The uh, financial situation of our parents? Is it... Uh, My own personal determination, is it charisma? What exactly marks the difference between success and failure in living a life of purpose and meaning? I think King David had some thoughts to share on this topic. And I would say he's probably somebody we would do well to listen to because King David lived... 3,000 years ago, more than 3,000 years ago. And we still know about him today. Uh, So I think that qualifies as somebody who lived some kind of a significant life and left an impact behind. So let's consider what he had to say about it. Today we are looking at Psalm 20, verse 7. And uh, the emphasis of this week's work has been looking to God. And this verse illustrates that principle very well. Before I dive into the verse itself, let me talk about the psalm as a whole. Uh, This psalm, Psalm 20, is a psalm written by David. And it's a psalm of blessing. He is pronouncing a blessing on those singing this song that he wrote. And thousands of years later, on those like you and me today who are reading the words of this song that he wrote. He pronounces a blessing. And what is the uh, content of this blessing? Well, he asks that we find answer in the day of trouble. He asks that we find protection in life. He asks that when we are in need of it, that we find the help we need. He asks that we be sustained through life. He asks also that we have our heart's desire granted. And I think we may misread that. 
today because for us today heart is about emotion and it's kind of this whatever happens to strike your fancy at any given moment we have this whole genre of movies and and novels romance right uh rom-coms and all that uh that's not what was in the mind of the biblical authors in antiquity when they talked about heart they weren't talking about how you were feeling they talked about, dig deeper than that. Let's get to the core of who you are. What are you about? If we were to strip you down to the core uh, will and determination and what your whole life is going to be about, that's when we've arrived at your heart. So I think David is acknowledging that in every human heart, at the very core of our beings, there is some kind of a, a need for significance. There is something in the human heart that calls for, for something, a, a purpose, a significance in the living of this life. And, and David's blessing is that your heart find that fulfilled that you find what you were designed to be in this life you're living. Uh, to put it another way, he, he's, he desires that the plan of your life be fulfilled. And again, uh, David is assuming that we're not just here by accident, that our lives are not just some cosmic joke, but that we have actually been put on this earth because there is some kind of a plan for the living of this human life. And David, his blessing is that that plan come to fruition. He asks that you be saved, that we find rescue. He asks that we have our petitions granted. And he asks that God will save the king, that he will secure those in authority so that we can live in peace and have a good life lived. The striking thing about David's psalm here is in all these blessings that he speaks, there's only one source of all of this that I've just been describing to you. And in the whole psalm, it's very clear, the only place you're going to find any of this is Yahweh. Or alternatively, he calls him the God of Jacob. Reminding those who are hearing this psalm that God has been faithful for a very long time. Or he calls him our God, the God who deigns to be in relationship with us. That's the source of all of these blessings. And in this psalm, he also points out that there's a little bit of this that is our side of the thing. Our side of the equation. God, uh, to, to bring this blessing to bear in our lives, there's also something on our side. And he talks about our offerings. And uh, talks about a burnt offering. And uh, here David is referencing a whole uh, slew of things that we find in the books of Moses. In the books of Leviticus and Numbers, uh, there are chapter upon chapter describing in great detail all the different kinds of offerings you can bring to the altar. And most of these were voluntary offerings that had nothing to do uh, with... Uh, you being obligated to do them. Some of them were, but uh, for example, there was the grain offering. 
And this was just a spontaneous gift. You would bring this as a gift of gratitude to God and the priest because some would be burned on the altar, the rest would be given to the priest and he would take it home and he would have this grain to make bread and, and have uh, food. And it, it was just a way of saying, God, I'm so grateful for you. And to the priest, thank you so much for helping me uh, in this relationship with God. There was the peace offering. And in this one, you brought an animal. And the animal was basically divvied up three ways. Part of it went to the priest, and he ate that. Part of it went to the one who brought it, and he ate that. And the other part was burned on the altar to God. And it's kind of like reenacting this idea that let's all sit down at a table and share a community of faith. And the goodness of God bringing priest and worshiper together to the same table. And that's why it was called a peace offering. It represented this bringing together. There were guilt offerings. When you did something wrong to another person, you came before God and brought a sacrifice and asked God to forgive you. But you also gave restitution to the person you had harmed. And this guilt offering was the way you made things right. It also included when you did something against God regarding his holy things and you accidentally offended God in some way regarding the things he considered holy. It was the way of fixing something you've done wrong. Making amends and restoring the relationship. There was the sin offering and this one only had to do when you had disobeyed God. And you had committed sin and not done what God said. Uh, and this one specifically was uh, when you did this unintentionally and found out later God didn't want you to do that. You would bring this offering to make things right with God. And then there's the burnt offering that David says, may your burnt offering be received. And this one was the one where the, the unblemished animal was brought and the whole animal was wholly burned on the fire to God and the whole animal was fully consumed and this pointed to the true burnt, burnt sacrifice, uh, which was Jesus. But this represented the idea of one unblemished who takes on your sin and atones for your sin and makes you right with God. All of these things, David says, in all of these things, bring your offerings before God. And he's pointing out that the blessings God intends to bring in our lives and the significance that comes from receiving those blessings are happening within a relationship with God. As we reach out to God in all these many ways that the law of Moses allowed we are interacting with a God who is in relationship with us. And uh, there's, uh, I think I've said enough about the psalm. Let, let's dive into the, the one verse we're looking at today. Uh, verse 7, chapter 20, verse 7. Some boast in chariots and some in horses. Uh, the, the verb here, there's only, it only occurs once in the verse, and actually it doesn't happen until the end of the verse. So, some in chariots, some in horses, but we, and boom, there's the verb at the end of the, but it, but it applies to all three of those, right? Uh, the verb is nazkir, 
uh, in the Hebrew. And I looked this up and, uh, because I noticed that some translations say some trust and some translations say some boast. So I looked it up, uh, and this is a, a publication that the United Bible Societies uh, provides for people who are translating Bibles. It's a highly respected resource. And this is what they had to say about this particular verb in this verse. The causative, this is the causative of the verb to remember. So the verb has to do with remembering something, meaning to make mention of something as the cause for victory and to do so in terms of boasting or trusting. So that's, here's what this word is about. It's about remembering what caused you to attain victory. Why did I succeed? Why did I reach this moment of victory? Why did I not, I not fail? Why did everything go the way it was supposed to be? Why? And as you look back, you boast in this is why. And we have won. We came out on top and we boast about it. We express our confidence in that this is the cause for our current state of being in victory. So, David says some people, when they're talking about victory, what they brag about is their chariots. So in antiquity, this was the, the ultimate uh, expression of military superiority on the battlefield. There's nothing a, a soldier standing on his own two feet could do when he was staring down a chariot bearing down on him. It didn't matter how good that warrior was. The chariot was vastly superior and could very easily mow down even the mightiest warrior. So having chariots was the key to victory in many uh, battles. And not only that, uh, some don't boast in chariots, some boast in horses. And horses were also something that raised a person up so that your view of the battle is much higher and your ability to interact with those who are on the ground puts you in a superior position. You're, you have the high ground automatically by being on the back of the horse and your mobility is far far greater and horses marked a huge difference in the battles of antiquity so people who had chariots and horses were generally the ones who won the battles and David says yes yeah, some people brag about their chariots and their horses this is the reason we have achieved victory and I will kind of give away the second half of the verse. You've probably been memorizing it already, so you know how it ends. We don't boast in this. We boast in the name of Yahweh, our God. So uh, we think about this and say, yeah, you're right. That's the way people in the world do things. They, they look at all these things that they have and they've accomplished, and, uh, but we Christians don't do that. Have you ever expressed pride in, in this nation because we have the best military in the world? Have you ever bragged about our chariots and horses and bragged about it as the cause for our victory? The reason nobody wants to mess with us is we've got the most sophisticated weaponry in the world. We have the best trained military in the world and that is why we are safe, right? Sometimes it isn't just the world that talks that way. Sometimes we Christians fall into these patterns of thinking. But let's, let's leave the government and the nation to one side. Let's talk specifically inside the church. Let's talk about ministry. 
I have become disillusioned over the years with attending Christian leadership conferences because my experience has been this is what they do when they organize a conference. They look for the pastors of the largest churches in the nation and they call them in and say, tell us how you did it. And they show up and they tell us how they did it. They talk about their strategies. They talk about the challenges they faced and how they overcame them. They talk about their mindset and how they analyzed the data and did all these things. And boom, this is why we had such great success. Go do the same and your church will explode. I have yet to go to one of these conferences where the person speaking says, you know what, I didn't do anything. I just happened to be at the right place where God was choosing to do something. But we don't. We want to boast in our chariots. We want to boast in our horses because we want to think it is something we have control over. And it's my determination. It's my tremendous insight, my charisma, my ability to make just the right decision at the right moment and doing all these strategizing and planning and we have all these things and we're going to do it for the glory of God. Except when we talk about it, we don't talk about God, we talk about how we did it. So it really isn't about the glory of God. Some do this. Some boast in chariots. Some boast in horses. But we boast in the name of Yahweh, our God. Yahweh, the great I am. I find it very interesting that the the single most outstanding military leader Israel ever had, David. Look at, read the Old Testament. You will not find a more successful military leader in the history of Israel. David never said, let me tell you how I did it. I got these chariots. I went to Egypt and I picked up the best horses. As far as we know, David didn't have that stuff. And yet he defeated every enemy. And they had enemies clear around them, all around. How did he do it? Well, it started young with David. He knew his victory wasn't something he was accomplishing. And we, we, we first see David achieve a military victory when he's a teenager. He's just a kid, and he happens to be at the front lines when the champion of the Philistines, this guy who's been a warrior since a child, and he is the champion of the whole army of the Philistines, and he's a, a giant, a towering giant of a man, and he's in full armor. And he comes out and challenges Israel. And the only reason David stepped up to fight him is nobody else was willing to. And I remember, you remember the joke of that, right? When David is preparing to go out and fight this champion of the Philistines, Goliath, and he's getting ready, and Saul tries to put his armor on David, and David can't even walk, it's too heavy, he's never worn armor, he cannot wear that. And he can't use the sword, he's never trained, he doesn't know how to use a sword. You know the only thing David knew going into that fight? He knew how to sling rocks. He had a rock slinger. 
That's all he took into battle, and five rocks. And God gave him victory. Miraculously, that one rock he threw happened to lodge itself at just the right point in the skull of that giant and toppled him. Now, after that, David never said, guys, I'm, I have such good aim. I mean, I could hit a flea at 20 paces. No, he didn't talk about that. The only reason with a, a rock slinger that I was able to take down this warrior is God. I brought nothing to the table. God did it. And you might think, okay, yeah, but once he became a seasoned warrior, he had fought battles and had learned to use weapons and armor and all the things. Uh, did he change? No, he didn't. That's why David had the success he had. You know how he planned for battles? When he was king of Israel and people came to fight them and he prepared for battle? He didn't call his strategists and come up with the best battle plan. They didn't analyze the terrain and to try to figure out if we come at it from this end, then we'll have the superiority and we'll, we'll be able to dominate in the battlefield. He never did it that way. You know what he did when the Philistines came against him? He asked God, God, what do I do? God said, just meet him, meet him face on. You'll win. So that's what he did. That was his battle plan. He went and face on, took them face on, defeated them. They came again. And David didn't say, okay, now I know how to do this. I'll just meet them face on and win. No, he asked God again, God, how do I fight this battle? And God said, don't meet them face on. Go around the back and you'll win. So that was his battle plan. And guess what? He won. You see, David's success was not due to weapons. It wasn't due to his skill as a warrior. It wasn't due to his ability to strategize. The only reason he won these battles was God. And he tells all of Israel, he tells you and me today, that's the only reason you even know my name. Because God did all this stuff in my life. Sometimes we look at exactly the wrong thing. David knew that God was the only one who had accomplished anything in his life. Because of that, uh, he, he became the best king Israel ever had before Jesus showed up. So you want your life to be significant? You want your life to make a difference? You want to receive all these blessings that David is talking about in this psalm? The key is going to be God. And your willingness to not have any plan but whatever plan God has. That's how David did it. He didn't even have the plan to be king. God's the one who called him to be king. He, he just, at every point of, the, of his life, he checked with God and he did what God told him. And that is where, when he looks back and remembers, when he says, what's the cause for this victory? Let me brag about something. God is the reason. 
you might think, well, why does God want us to brag about him? What, is he insecure? Does he need us to constantly be telling him how great he is because he might have forgotten? That's not it at all. But you know, the world is inundated with the constant droning instruction. Here is the plan on how you can make it. This is the way you are going to achieve victory. And even in Christian circles, we still have this, right? You look up articles online and you have 12 things that every successful pastor is doing. Seven things that are sure to cause people to not come to your church. Ten things you can do to blah, 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 whatever. David said nothing about that. Boast in the name of Yahweh. And because there's this constant droning lie out there, when we stop and say, you want to know how I achieved victory? God did it. I didn't even have a clue. I didn't have a plan. I didn't have any skills to make it happen, but God did it anyway. When we do that, people around us finally hear what they needed to hear. Because this is the only answer for any of us in living this human life. So we boast in the name of Yahweh our God, not because He needs it, but because we need to hear it. We need to be reminded that on our own we cannot do anything. And that He can do anything. And that is the way our heart needs to be oriented. That is where the focus needs to be. David lived this way. And it's because of that that Israel had the kind of success it had. You read in the Bible and the, the, the kingdom of David sounds like Camelot. It sounds like King Arthur and his knights. There are these ridiculous stories because you know what? Not only did David believe that God is the one who gives victory and that there's nothing God cannot do, but soon his soldiers started thinking the same way. To the point that one soldier would stand in a field, 300 enemies coming at him and say, you know what, I can take them. God can grant me victory over 300 enemies all by myself because it doesn't depend on me. And warriors did things like that. In David's days. In fact, even somebody, you know who Joab is? It was David's cousin, and he was general of the army. And boy, he was a sneaky, self-centered, self-serving man. He was not a, a, a great paragon of virtue. He was a hardened warrior and uh, very pragmatic. But notice how even he is affected by this perspective. There's a day when Joab is facing a battle. If you're familiar with the geography of, of, of uh, Canaan, the Jordan River goes north-south. And if you cross the Jordan on the other side, then to the south you had the Ammonites, the Moabites. To the north you had Syria. So on this side, there's a, a sharp cliff, uh, mountains on this side. And on this side you have the Jordan River. He faced a battle in that piece of land there. And he was being fought on the south from the Moabites 
and on the north from the Syrians they were coming and he was sandwiched between the two armies and there's mountains on this side you can't go that way the Jordan River on this side you can't go that way he was stuck in the middle that is the most awful situation to face a battle and as he's telling his brother you fight on this side I'll fight on this side and let's try to help each other out if it gets bad uh, this is what he told his brother 2 Samuel 10, 12. Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may Yahweh do what seems good to him. Even Joab got it. He knew the victory is not going to be up to me. I'll do what I can do and God's the one who's going to decide who's going to win. The work of the kingdom of God isn't just hard it's impossible Jesus already talked about this it's like trying to fit a camel through the eye of a needle can you do that no In fact Jesus said it it's impossible with men but not with God God can do what is impossible it takes a miracle to truly change a human heart. To shatter the stranglehold of sin. To release a heart from the prison of self to the wide open spaces of God and others. It takes a miracle. We can fail to understand the truth of the kingdom. We can think our success is going to depend on our facilities, on the skill of our leaders, the money we have to spend, the reliability and determination of our membership. Some think victory comes from chariots and horses. The truth is, only God can do kingdom work. We need to know that God alone does the miraculous work of his kingdom. And we must proclaim this truth without hesitation. The world has been misdirected to look inward for far too long. The day has come for Christ's people to stand tall and boast in the great I am who is our God and who alone does the only work the world needs done. I don't know where you find yourself this morning. Maybe you're struggling for, to make sense of your life, for your life to have some kind of semblance of purpose or meaning or impact. Maybe you're recognizing this morning as you hear the word of God that there is this thing in the core of your being, in the very heart of who you are, that cries out for more. Let me tell you today, God wants to answer that. He wants to make your life glorious. But it's only going to happen if you let Him do it. If you insist on holding on to the reins of your life, if you insist on doing it yourself, you will never get it done. But if you're ready to surrender that to Christ, to say to Jesus, okay, God, take my life and do your glorious work with it. You know what? I will have no plan but what you have planned. I will have no purpose but what you have purposed. I will have no direction but where you lead me. And I will do nothing but what you would have of me. Impress the world, God, 
with how great you are in my life. If that's you this morning, I want to challenge you to step forward and take that commitment with Christ. Maybe you already know Christ and you just need to renew that commitment. Maybe you've been distracted, you've fallen into looking inward and forgotten that you should only be focusing on Him. Whatever God puts on your heart today, this is the moment in our worship where we have a chance to do something tangible in response. So let me ask you all to stand. We're going to have uh, couples on either side of the stage here at the front. They're just brothers and sisters like you and me. There's nothing magical about them. But there's something about sharing with another person what God is calling you to do and letting them pray with you. If that's you this morning, come, take their hand, share with them. Let them encourage you and pray with you. And let's partner with whatever it is God is up to. Come while we sing.